Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, and we'll, we'll get to Acts in just, uh, just a minute, but go ahead and just find uh, Acts chapter 2. All right, I have, a, I have a question for you. I'm going to have a few questions tonight, or at least two, and uh, looking for audience participation. I know you all love that. Uh, you love to be called out, and uh, you love for me to tell you that you're wrong. Uh, so, but that's not what we're doing, all right, but I'm going to ask a question. If you had to guess, what would you say are some of the hardest groups, organizations, or companies to be a part of? I know that's a big field, right? Just name some. What would you think might be some difficult groups, organizations, institutions, companies to, in essence, join or work for? Got any ideas? Yes, Gabby. Google, all right, okay. Google, what a a great response. Google is the single hardest company to work for in the United States. Uh, They received last year, they received 3 million applications and only hired 7,000. Now, not a math guy, but that's less than 1%, right? Am I right there? Okay, that's less than 1% of a hiring rate. Yes, so uh, it is very difficult uh, to get in with Google, all right? Anybody else? Something, a company, institution, there's a little hint, all right? Okay, perhaps Microsoft, I don't have any numbers on them, but my guess is yes, they would also be difficult to work for, to get into, into, Jody? Okay, all right, we'll come back to that one, all right? Okay, all right? So, so she mentioned... Perhaps it may be not difficult to join, but perhaps can be a challenge to be a part of a local church. All right? Harvard. All right. I was wondering if somebody would go north and ivy on us. Okay? Yes, Harvard is one of the most difficult schools to get into. They have about a 5.33% applicant ratio. Uh, in fact, uh, the most recent president of Harvard said they could fill up their freshman class with valedictorians two times over and still not admit every valedictorian that applies to them. So, it is competitive. Did you know, though, they are not the most competitive school in the country? Anybody want to take a gander at a guess there at what the most competitive, most difficult school in the country is to get into? No, not MIT. University of Tennessee. No, it's not. It, yeah, Stanford. Stanford is the most difficult school. It's just above 5% of, of applicants uh, actually make it in. Let, let me give you another one. Anybody here ever dreamed of being a Delta flight attendant? Anyone? No? Yeah? Okay. Sandy West. I'm picking on her, but she raised her hand, all right? So she wanted to be one. John Strickland probably did. He didn't want to raise his hand, but he's always wanted to be a flight attendant, all right? It is one of the most difficult jobs in the country to get. They said in 2013, they had 44,000 applications for 400 jobs. That's less than 1%, all right? So, I mean, you're talking about a significant challenge. How about this? Let me give you another option, then, then, then we'll move on. Anybody think it sounds nice to be able to live in a 13,600-acre private ski and golf club residential community in Big Sky, Montana? 
Some of you yes, some of you not so much. I don't know, the golf's pretty tempting, right? Well, here's all that you need. $250,000 to join. Chump change for everybody in the room, right? All right? Just drop that in a heartbeat. $250,000 just to join. Simple annual dues, $20,000 a year. That's all you got to pay, $20,000 a year. Now, the one kicker is, though, you do have to buy a house in this residential area. And you know what the starter homes are? $1.65 million. All right, that's the starter home. That's the entry-level home for you. Uh, if for some of you who are really uh, independently wealthy and you want a ranch-style house, that'll cost you about $18 million. But the benefit is you'll live next door to Dan Quayle, Jack Kemp, and Bill Gates. All right, so quite the residential community. Now, I, I mention all of these just, just as a way to kind of lead us into thinking about the topic tonight. And Jody's kind of already referenced something here. We recognize that we've got all of these organizations, institutions, and it's not including other groups like local, benevolent kind of groups. All of their expectations when it comes to joining, when it comes to membership, when it comes to being a part of the group, there are a lot of these kinds of organizations that would be on the list. But you notice a, a group that's not, at least when it comes to difficulty in being a member of it. That's the church. Granted, there may be challenges once you become a member. For the most part, it's not that hard to join a church. Can you imagine what it would be like if at every business meeting I had to give a pastor's report and I said, we had 3,000 applications last quarter and I could only manage 300 of them. Can you imagine what that, what would that look like? Now, I recognize that the mission of the church is different than Google, all right? than Harvard or Stanford or Delta Flight Attendant School. All right? I recognize we're different. That is, we're not, we're not trying to just open up a few spots. You know, we want the gospel to go to the nations, and we'd love to see converts of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Nonetheless, I think it is worth thinking about that often the easiest organization in any community to join It's the local church. Now, some of you may hear that and think, all right, Pastor, what's the problem? Well, what I think can be a real issue, and this has continued to grow as a problem in church life, the church as a whole, I think what can be the problem is is expectations continue to get lower and lower. Churches are concerned about declining membership and declining roles, and so what do we do in response? Beg people to join, right? We give them every reason to join. We make no expectations of them. We place no obligations upon them. Come as you are. Be what you are. Do what you want. And did you know there are plenty of churches that even hardly require some kind of adherence to a statement of faith? Plenty of churches where you could just believe what you want to believe, live how you want to live, just come, be a part, and let us count your head for the sake of our church role. Sometimes the church doesn't necessarily have the best expectations for members. Not only in the joining, but then also the expectation of members once they have joined. I've talked about this before. In fact, I think I mentioned it this past Wednesday night. You know, one of the real tragedies, I think, of every church I've ever been in. And I don't think there's an exception to this, by the way. I've never been a member or pastor of a church 
where the church facility could hold the actual number of members on the roll. We have far more members on the roll here at Tabernacle than could legally fit in the sanctuary. Forget comfortably, right? Now this is true all over, by the way. I'd be surprised if there are many churches that fall outside of this. In other words, the the church can be easy to join, but it's very difficult to get off of. And, And it's even entirely possible. There are folks... Uh, that join other churches and never leave the role of the previous church that they were a part of. And sometimes these expectations are quite low. What does it mean to be an active church member? What should a church place expectations on its membership? Now when I say a church, I mean should we collectively, not the pastor, right? Not the pastor, you know, with his children, all right, telling them, you've got to come to church, all right? I mean, should we as a church, a church, think about, Obligations, expectations for membership. So tonight, we continue our, our quest to define what is a healthy church. We've already looked at the role of worship, the role of theology, and back all the way before Thanksgiving, we started to look at the role of membership. A healthy church, here's a real shocker, you ready for this? This is profound, write it down, tweet it, all right? Facebook it, whatever. A healthy church is made up of healthy church members. All right, yeah, so, so we're, not, we're not talking deep and profound theology here, okay? A healthy church is made up of healthy church members. Now, we, we set out then to ask two questions, and I'll probably will add a third one before we're done. Before we even then get into the question of, well, what does a healthy church member look like? I, th- I thought it was significant to ask the question, should we even be a member in the first place? Well, this is what we talked about back before Thanksgiving. What, what, what is the biblical expectations here? Now, I know we're talking to a Sunday night crowd. Chances are you all are in church membership. All right? It means something to you. You at least think it's significant on some level. And so hopefully some of this material is helpful when you have people who inevitably will challenge you, who will say, I don't have to join a church. I don't have to be a part of a local church. I can worship God just as easily, fill in the blank, all right? You've had these conversations, right? You've had these conversations with folks. I don't have to be a part of that. So I set out to answer that question. You see those answers on your notes there. So if you weren't with us, uh, here at least are the simple answers. If you'd like more detail, email me. I'll be glad to send you the manuscripts uh, that, uh, that I have for those sermons. Why join a church? Yes, the Bible does clearly expect it. It also promotes spiritual development, provides for Christian fellowship, and demonstrates genuine commitment. These wouldn't be the only reasons, but I think they're good ones for why we should join a church. All right, so number two. So tonight, our task is now to ask this second question and uh, to begin to fill in the answers. All right, so what is the expectations for membership? What should we expect of one another. What, and again, this would be asked on two different levels. What, what should be expected of us when we join? Like what, what's required to join? And then what should be expected of a church member after that? So, let's ask this question, alright? Another moment for audience participation. What do you think should be the expectations placed upon a church member? 
What should be required in order to join? And then what should be expected thereafter? Anybody want to hazard a guess? All right, Margie. Okay, believer in Jesus Christ. All right. Okay, committed. Okay, committed to the... Okay, okay, to be active. If you don't mind me asking, how would you define active? Do you have an idea? What would that look like? Okay, using your gifts, supporting church ministries. Yeah, Julian. Okay, all right, prayer. Excellent, very good. Okay, attendance, showing up. All right. You're all worrying me. There's one you haven't mentioned. We desperately need every now and then. Yeah, yeah. Okay, pra- all right, prayers. Yeah, prayer has been mentioned. Okay, hospitable. Members should be kind, hospitable, or greeting folks. Good. Yes. Ta- okay, all right, giving. Yes. A willingness to serve. All right. All right, growing in maturity as a believer, okay? Okay, so similar to that, committed to coming to Bible study, being involved in Bible study. All right, engaged in evangelism, okay? Anybody else? Yeah, Robert? Okay, all right, good. Baptism by immersion. We got way down the list before we got to that one, all right? But we got a good Baptist who mentioned it to us. Good, all right? Anything else you would venture to guess, state? You know, this is an interesting conversation because that inevitably leads then to the question, how do you enforce that? What do you do with that? I'm not asking necessarily for a response, per se, other than I think it is an interesting question that perhaps churches should carefully think about. We understand on the front end how we manage the front door of the church, so to speak. All right? So in other words, what does it take to actually join the church? So we manage that. But then beyond that, talking about ideas of growth, of evangelism, of giving, uh, of attendance... How is, that, how is that administrated? How is that? In other words, are these just expectations we place on one another? Do we hold one another accountable? These are interesting and helpful questions. I don't know that I'm going to answer that one. But I think it is something I'd love for you all to think about and would love to hear your response to that. So, let, okay, let's, let's now try and fill out this list. I think we've hit the main ones, and uh, we'll see these as we go along. We'll get to a couple of them here tonight, and, uh, and then next week, you know, again, sausage, right? cut off what we make tonight, wrap it up, and we'll fly, fry another batch next week, okay? So what does it mean then to be a church member? What is required? And again, I think there are two levels here. How do you get in the door? And then once you're in the door, what should be expected? All right, so number one, all right? Number one, and then again, we're going to look at seven of these. There'll probably be seven expectations for church membership. Why seven it's the number of perfection. I don't know. You know. You know how I do weird things like that. I don't want to put any more because six doesn't seem right and eight doesn't seem right. So we're going to stick with seven. All right. If you give me any more, I'm going to fit them into one of these seven categories. That's just the way the odd mind of your pastor works. 
and it works more so since he fell and hit his head on the concrete. All right, so, number one. It's really profound. A regenerate. I use that word because I like the word, all right? A regenerate member. And that is a fancy way of saying to be a member of the church, you have to be saved. You have to be saved. You have to be an actual believer. You have to be an actual born-again convert. You have to be somebody who has submitted to the gospel, where the old is gone, the new has come, where you are no longer dead in your trespasses to sin, but you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. So think of the word regenerate as regenerate. All right, Regeneration is often a word that's used to talk about what happens at salvation. The dead man or woman is given life through the gospel. I've been, been made alive in Christ. So the expectation would be that if somebody wants to join the church, first and foremost, there would be a means by which their conversion is evaluated. Now, this, is not, this can't be 100% accurate, right? I mean, however, this should, care, this should be a big deal to us as a church. And you say, well, pastor, that seems like a no-brainer. I mean, doesn't every church care about having believers as members? Well, did you know, I believe it's Billy Graham himself who has said, if the rapture happened today, a majority of members would still be in the church. I think it's Billy Graham who said something along those lines. That in fact, there may be a lot of folks on the rolls. Maybe even walked an aisle. Maybe signed a card somewhere. But in fact, they're not actually regenerate. Now, there's been a lot of emphasis over the last few years in the church world, and especially the Southern Baptist Convention, which I think is a great trend, to really, to really push and promote this idea that members need to give credible evidence of regeneration. That, that needs to be more than just some kind of half-hearted, five-second meeting with the pastor down front. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe in Jesus. That there needs to be this effort as part of the opening the door process. That, that we need to make sure those who are joining the church give credible testimony to the gospel. They understand the gospel. And again, it's not to say that they've got some dramatic conversion story, but just that they understand that I get some kind of testimony that says, yes, I was a sinner dead in my trespasses, Christ died and rose from the dead, that in Him and Him alone is the means of salvation, and faith in Him is the only way of being made right with God, that there is some kind of testifying uh, evidence to the fact that, that those, those who want to join the church, again, are regenerate. Now, I, I don't even think I need to give you Bible verses, but I could just point to the book of Acts. Because every time somebody gets added to the church, they get added because they believe the gospel. You can read that a dozen different times, all right? And then on top of that, when you read the letters, every letter that we find, at least most of them, indicate in the greeting that the people I'm writing to, Paul will say, so I'm I'm writing to the saints who are in Philippi. In other words, there's this expectation that those who are members of the church are genuinely saved. 
So a healthy church is going to have a healthy membership. Healthy membership begins with regenerate church membership. Those, those who, who, need to be, who are going to be a part of the church need to give some kind of testimony <clears throat> that they are actually saved. All right, let's, let's do one more, all right? Number two, and I'm a little concerned it wasn't mentioned second. All right, I just got to say, my Baptist roots are showing here, all right? So thank you, Robert, for coming to my rescue. A baptized member. Regen- these are in order, by the way. Not all of them will be in order, uh, but these two are, for sure. Regenerate, baptized. Ideally, that there was a conversion, and then there was a baptism. Now, I recognize that in terms of church tradition and other church denominations, this, this causes us as Baptists to stand out. All right? this, is a, this is an important part. I, I used to be able to say every Baptist church, regardless of the kind, uh, Southern Baptist, American Baptist, uh, Free Will Baptist, Primitive Baptist, you know, whatever, Independent Baptist, whatever blank Baptist you're talking about, all of them would require baptism by immersion. Shockingly enough, that's no longer the case. So they need to change their name altogether, because otherwise the name just doesn't make sense, all right? Because it's, that, that is in the, baptism is in the name, all right? So as a Baptist church, baptism then matters to us. Uh, I believe it is then the next step of entry. Now get this, this is important for my distinction here. Baptism is the next step of entry into fellowship with the local church. It's not a step into the kingdom of God itself. Okay? So, what, what is required to be a part of God's kingdom? Regeneration. Salvation. Period. Alright? Period. That's it. So, salvation is not dependent upon whether somebody gets wet or not. Okay? Only Christ is, is what is required for salvation. However, <clears throat> in order to say, yes, I'm going to align myself with this fellowship we do require baptism. And we require a particular kind of baptism. Believers, baptism by immersion. I know for some of you this is old hat, alright? So, stick with me here. You've heard it before. But maybe this just reinforces what we believe. Believers, baptism by immersion. That means baptism follows conversion. And it happens by a particular mode. And what is that mode? Duncan. Right? I mean, get you so wet that the back row of the choir gets wet, all right? I mean, that's what we mean, all right? By immersion, you've got to go all the way under that water. And ideally, you come all the way back up when we're done, all right? So, yes, this is what we mean, baptism by, by Im- immersion. Now, there, there are some verses I've laid out here, and here's what I would encourage you to do. Sometime tonight, tomorrow, see those verses where it talks about the book of Acts? Uh, and, and my intent tonight was just to, to kind of walk through these, but I, I really now think uh, that perhaps uh, you would be well served to just read through Acts with these in mind. Here's what you find when you read through all of these. They all indicate the same thing. Gospel is preached. Gospel is believed. They are baptized and added to the church. 
Alright, so this, this is the general process. And if you read through this, you'll find these are, the, these are uh, at least all the major examples of this where this happens. So right from the beginning, Acts chapter 2, 40 and 41, uh, as Peter concludes his sermon at Pentecost, then he says, so believe, repent, and be baptized. And then that is followed with exactly that happening. About 3,000 were added to their number. All right, And the assumption then being, so they did what he said. They believed, and they were baptized. So again, this, this is the general pattern that you find in the book of Acts. The baptism is critical, not necessarily for salvation, but an important part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, three other texts that I think illustrate the importance of baptism. Look at Matthew 28. You recognize Matthew 28, right? It's there, it's there on your notes. So we have the Great Commission. We have Jesus gathered there right before He's about to ascend. He's got all of His disciples, about 100 followers there. He says, all authority has been given unto me, heaven and earth. And then He gives this command, right? This essential command to the life of the church. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Do you notice the order? I think that's intentional. Go and make disciples and baptize. Make disciple, baptize. So, one comes before the other. Meaning the disciple making, the evangelistic effort, the the conversion happens. And then that's followed by baptism. Now, in terms of mode, I think Romans 6, 1 through 4 is, is a great verse or text that I think really emphasizes why immersion matters so much to us. When I say us, I mean us as Baptists, Southern Baptists. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Now shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now let's be very clear here. Paul is not talking about water baptism. He's talking about being baptized into Christ. Nevertheless, the imagery of of water baptism is is the, the metaphor that's driving his theological statement here. He he is he's saying, so here's what we have what we've done. We've been baptized into his death, and then as a result, we have been raised to walk in newness of life. And I can think of no other way to imagine what he's talking about than the practice of immersion. And and this is the case I've made before. This is why the mode I think is matters. Not that it matters for salvation, but why I think baptism by immersion is significant because every other mode, and when I say every other mode, there's sprinkling and then there's pouring. I don't know, you know how much difference there really is in the two, but there is some, I guess. I guess somebody could sprinkle you with water and somebody could pour a cup over your head. All right, those are different. But those being distinguished then from full immersion, those two other forms, modes of baptism, don't communicate Romans 6. What does communicate Romans 6? Going under the water. Coming up out of the water. In other words, when Jesus died, He wasn't sprinkled with death, right? Death wasn't poured on Him. He wasn't laid in just His head laying in the tomb, right? 
I know that sounds snarky, but that's what you get with me. But So, all of him was in the tomb, right? He was all the way dead. He was all the way dead, and then he was all the way raised. And the work of conversion, the work of the gospel is doing just that. So, what other mode would demonstrate that? But that the believer converted would then go into the water and come back out. Be raised to walk in newness of life. Again, that mode isn't doing the saving, but that mode is speaking to the means by which you've been saved. And this is why, as entrance into the church, we want you to be regenerate, and then we want you to follow through with believer's baptism by immersion. Now, at this point, I will make a comment. I do need to say this because there are godly, Bible-believing people that I highly respect who would aggressively disagree with some of the things I just said. In other words, there, there are brothers and sisters in Christ, faithful Presbyterians, alright? You, you, know, you all who know the distinction know that perhaps some of my theology may even lean Presbyterian, but my practice is very Baptist, alright? There, there are some who, who are there. In other words, what, what do they practice? Infant baptism. I'll give you some examples. You all familiar with the name R.C. Sproul? Fantastic Bible teacher, just recently passed away. Fantastic Bible teacher, pastor, theologian, author, I don't know, 50 some plus books. Practices infant baptism. Would vehemently disagree with me and probably would in the argument because he's way smarter than me. All right? But, I mean, he'd wipe the floor with me perhaps, except my theology is still better. But, I mean, he, he, would, he would argue, he would say, look, no, this is... The, the, the text that I reference, they're referencing what happened in the book of Acts for the first converts. Then he'd go into those texts and he'd say, look, there are references in the New Testament to whole households being baptized. Well, who would be involved in whole households? They make a big assumption here. Surely there are babies in those households. Now, the text never actually says that. There's not one text that ever literally explicitly says that the household meant babies were sprinkled with water. All right? Every other evidence we have are people after conversion, after believing the message, going into the water and coming up out of it. All right? that's, that's, that's regularly the language that is used to describe what happens in baptism. The argument being that really now what we do, those who practice infant baptism, what, what we do is we carry on the tradition of Old Testament circumcision. The sign of being a part of the covenant was circumcision. The sign of the new covenant is baptism. The sign of the old covenant was bestowed on infants. The sign of the new covenant is bestowed on infants. And so, they're not being saved by this act, but they are being included into the covenant community. Now, Again, I just say that out of fairness. Um, I find nothing compelling in Scripture to say that. Instead, I think I can go back historically and I can show you why both Luther and Calvin still had some qualms about fully leaving the Catholic Church. All right? I think that's where that comes from. The sprinkling of infants comes from. Because everywhere that then the fullness of the Reformation took root in terms of going back to the Scripture, then there was the practice of baptism by immersion to follow. So, when it comes to being, again, a, a healthy member of a church, these are the first two steps. These are in order, regeneration, baptism. All right, 
Next week, we'll get to more, okay? Hold on. Well, I'll probably add to these notes, so don't worry about holding on to them, okay? So, we'll get to it next week and, uh, and look at what would, uh, what would be more features, I think, biblically speaking, New Testament, uh, emphasizing uh, healthy church membership. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for gathering us today and again for the opportunity to to be with your people tonight and to think about your church and what it means to be a member of the church and to be in fellowship with you and with one another. And God, our desire is truly just to be a church that is faithful to you, that is faithful to your word, that we might be a healthy body of believers so that we can be most effective in your hands and all for the sake of the gospel of of making disciples and growing people in Christ-likeness. And we thank you for now the week that lays out before us. We, we trust that you've gone before us. We trust our lives into your care. Lead and guide us. Give us wisdom, wisdom that's beyond that which may come naturally to us so that we might know how to live in faithfulness and obedience to you, that we would share the gospel, live the gospel, and that you would be glorified in it all. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.